0: Amen. Take your Bibles, uh, Genesis chapter 2, uh, you are God's masterpiece, you, you are God's masterpiece. Some of you don't believe that, do you? When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Uh, what do you see when you look in that mirror? This is awesome. Genesis chapter 2 is a second week of the series, you are his masterpiece. The creation narrative in Genesis 1 we were at last week, uh, it was like Beethoven's fifth symphony. It was crescendoing uh, all throughout uh, the universal display of God's awesome character as he creates the universe. And all of it is like a symphony as it crescendos and builds to this final climax of creation stories in chapter 1, verse 27, where it says, so God created man in his what? In his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It is the first lines of poetry in the scripture, and it's as if God reserved his best art for last. The creation narrative is all about esteeming the fact that there's a God of the universe who in his infinite display of creativity put the paintbrush at work and began to create the cosmos, and at the finish of his work, he creates man in his own image, and the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. This world will say, you are a cosmic accident. Moses, who writes this, says, you are a divine image bearer. Amen, Craig. <laughs> That's awesome. This world will say you are a product of random chances and particles. Moses, who writes this, gives a alternative to that view that says you are uniquely designed with inestimable value by an awesome God. God who created the Milky Way, which is glorious. This God who gave lions the ability to roar, which is marvelous. This God who gave cheetahs such speed that's fabulous. This God who made mallard ducks that are just gorgeous. This God who gave drafts their height, which is magnanimous. But above all of that, above all of his creation, he made humans which are precious. You are God's masterpiece. Genesis chapter 2 upholds a narrative of creation uh, that says that there's a unique and a very personal God at work. In fact, in chapter 1, the name of God is used as just Elohim all the way through. God said, God said, God said, God declared, God saw. It's all Elohim. Chapter 2 is a noticeable shift to a very personal name of God. It is Yahweh Elohim. It is a very noticeable shift in the language. I would relate it to this. Uh, one of my daughters is a, in a relationship with a boy now, and he texted me the other day because he wanted to talk, and his text said, Mr. Treeweiler. Yes. <laughs> That's right. But I said, you can call me Craig. Now, what if I, uh, on the other uh, end of the spectrum, what if my children came up to me and said, Mr. Treeweiler, would they be correct? Yes, they could address me as such, but how much more appropriate if they came up to me and said, Daddy... And this seems to be the, the 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 difference as it goes from chapter one we're dealing with Mr. Creator, the awesome God who speaks creation into existence by the word of his power, and in chapter Two, we almost seem to get a very personal glimpse at this very intimate personal creator, almost as if it is Daddy now who is tenderly and carefully creating humankind as his masterpiece. Genesis 2 zooms in the story now. It goes from the realms of the cosmos and the Milky Way and the stars and the sun and the moon, and it goes all the way down to a very specific spot on planet Earth where Daddy, where Abba, where Yahweh is going to do a very intimate and very personal act now. Chapter 2, many think, is a retelling now of day 6 of creation. It tells us how God made man in his own image. Chapter 1 just said from the big cosmic view, he creates man in his own image, male and female, he creates them. Chapter 2 shows us how he did that, and it shows us why we were created. Those are very two unique characteristics of humanity, that is our existence and our vocation. By the way, this is a world that has not fallen. It's a world that is untainted by sin. It is a world that is perfect in nature, and it is a world in which God is dwelling with his people. And he talks about our existence and, indeed, our vocation. Look at verse 7 with me of chapter 1, of chapter 2, rather. As it recounts the story of the creation once again. This is how the heavens and the earth were created. And it talks about while well, there is no yet uh, not yet any man upon the earth. Verse 7 says, Then the Lord God, what's the next word? Formed, very personal, very intimate, formed the man of dust from the ground. And next word, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Genesis 1, God said, let there be. God said, let there be. God said, let there be. Chapter 2, the Lord, the powerful personal creator is viewed as a hands-on God. This creator of the universe uh, bends a knee, if you will. He gets down in the dust of his creation. This creator now is pictured as getting dirty a bit. He takes and collects dust together. This hands-on God who has the power to speak the cosmos into existence by the word of his power, doesn't do so here. He's a very personal creator. He begins to shape this person who has a heart that beats, a brain that thinks with bones and ligaments. He gives us a a tongue to taste, a mouth uh, to speak, ears to hear. He gives us eyes to see. That's amazing, right? I mean, he does all of this. It It is as if the potter is shaping the clay. And the scripture here talks about this man that he makes, this this thing, this object, by the way, is not living yet, and it calls him a man of dust. Dust. Indicating our frailty, our dependence upon God. Psalm 103 will say that we are just dust. Dust. Ecclesiastes 3, we are all from dust. The scripture speaks about dust as if we are frail and dependent upon this one who created us all. And therefore, perhaps the best biblical name that you could ever give a son would be dusty or clay. (laughs) Biblical names. But what was true of Adam in a very specific sense is also true of us in a very special way as well. Here is God, the potter, shaping the clay. Here is God, Psalm says forming our inward parts. The psalmist says that he knit us together in the mother's womb. Isn't that a power? Isn't that a very personal act? Here is the God of the universe knitting, forming, shaping. And what was true of Adam in a very unique way at the start is also equally true of us, that we could say we too are people of dust created by this awesome God formed and knit together in our mother's womb. When you think about knitting, what is that? It's like, it's like a, a, a grandmother, right? Or a mother oftentimes who, who knits together and, and who weaves. And, and this is a picture of a very personal God. You know, when you do, uh, there, there's many people that are into uh, you know, finding out where their ancestries are, uh, finding out where their heritage, where their roots go, uh, you know, you got, what's your background? You know what your background is, your family lineage, your family history. Uh, I think I'm half Dutch and half German, I think that's what I am. We never knew what my wife was until this past year, and so uh, we did that. It was uh, myheritage.com, and so we found out, it was fascinating. My wife, she's, she's 52% English, okay, uh, royalty. That's royalty. She's 20-some percent Scandinavian. That's like Viking. That's serious stuff, right? And she's 20% uh, Welsh. That's like the excitable Irish part of her. Uh, And then she's uh, like 4% Eastern European, and then she's uh, 3% Jewish. She's chosen. Love it. But if you take the ancestry, if you take the heritage, if you take our roots all the way back, Acts 17, Paul is preaching the word, and he says that God, this creator, created from one man the entire nations of mankind. If you take the roots, the heritage, the ancestries all the way back, the Bible affirms that we all descended from this one man. But here in the midst of it, verse 7, the most important act has not yet been done. This God who very personally, like a potter with clay, uh, like, a, like a, a grandmother who's knitting together something, th- th- this God who shapes this man of dust, now does divine CPR. It says he breathed whew, into this man and it says, the man became a living being. Do you see it? How do you get life from non-life? This world will offer you one alternative. The scripture says how you get life from non-life is that we have an awesome God who creates mankind in his image, and it is a very stamp of that image, he puts a unique powerful breath of his image into this man, and the man became a living being. You are his masterpiece. This is an awesome personal God. First Corinthians 15, New Testament now, we'll talk about uh, this scenario, and it will say this. The first Adam, talking about this right here, Uh, Paul, he's writing about uh, Genesis chapter 2. The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, he's now talking about Jesus, that is the true and better. The the focus of the series is to get a glimpse at Jesus, the true and better, who can be preached from the book of Genesis. It says this, the last Adam became a, what does it say? Read it. Life-giving Spirit, isn't that powerful? The first Adam, uh, he became a living being. The last Adam, the true and better Adam, became a life-giving spirit. And what do we see? In the days of Jesus' ministry on earth, the last miracle of the book of John, that Jesus stands at the tomb of a man named Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus, He says, Lazarus, come out. Come out. And John says, the man who was dead came to life. This is the powerful Jesus that we worship, isn't it, church? The one who has the power to be a life giving spirit. But it doesn't stop with Lazarus. In fact, all around this globe, anytime somebody goes from death to life, anytime somebody goes from unsaved to saved, or non-believer to believer, or from atheist to, a salve- to saved in Jesus Christ, there is something powerful going on as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords breathes life into that person. And the scripture says, at once we were dead in our trespasses, but now we have what? Come to life. Through faith in Jesus Christ. This happens all around the globe. There was an article uh, in the Wall Street Journal just before Christmas, uh, and a powerful article. It was called The Salvation of Napalm Girl. She writes this My name is Kim Fook, though you likely know me by another name, it is one I never asked for, a name I have spent a lifetime trying to escape Napalm Girl. You've probably seen my picture a thousand times. Yeah, that picture. The image that made the world gasp. Some called it a turning point in the Vietnam War. It was me, 1972, age nine, running along a puddled roadway in front of an expressionless soldier. I was photographed with arms outstretched, naked and shrieking, in pain and fear, with the dark contour of a napalm cloud billowing in the distance." Those bombs, she says, have caused me immeasurable pain over the course of my life. Forty-five years later, I am still receiving treatments for burns that cover my arms, my back, and my neck. For years, I bore the crippling weight of anger, bitterness, and resentment. Yet as I look back over a spiritual journey that has now spanned more than three decades, I realize that those same bombs that caused me so much pain and suffering also brought me to a place of great healing those bombs led me to jesus christ my salvation experience occurred on christmas eve it was 1982 i was attending a special worship service at a small church in vietnam with pastor ho Hu ha a decade removed from the defining tragedy of my life i still desperately needed peace When Pastor Ho finally finished speaking, I stood up, stepped out into the aisle, and made my way to the front of the sanctuary to say yes to Jesus Christ. This is a story from Napalm to New Creation. Is a testimony of faith. It's a testimony of what this person, this salvation, the Savior that we serve, who's Jesus Christ, he is a life-giving spirit. And it says in Genesis chapter 2, as the Lord forms this person and breathes life into them, this is a masterpiece of God, and you are his masterpiece. Everybody say, I am His masterpiece. You need to believe that. He is a God who can take your most difficult and terrible event in life and transform you from napalm to new creation. We are his masterpiece. And our existence owes itself to him. Take a look now at verse uh, 8 and 15. Verse 8, and the Lord God planted. Uh, Now we're going to talk vocation. Why did he create us? Uh, What were we to do? And the Lord God, again, very personal name, think Abba, think Daddy. The Lord Yahweh planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, And to keep it. Here we have a very specific spot now on planet Earth. It's called Eden. Uh, I, I love the books about Lewis and Clark and the Western expansion and the expedition. And as Lewis and Clark in the early 1800s were journeying out west in Western America, they regularly would describe America as Eden, uh, the abundance of the buffalo and, and the herds of, of animals, the idyllic setting of the prairie, the, the, the gorgeous uh, uh, hills of the Rocky Mountains, all of it they described as Eden. But here in Genesis 2, it is literally Eden, This is the one spot on earth now that God has chosen as his headquarters, if you will. In fact, what makes Eden Eden is not the lush and gorgeous flora and fauna. It is not the fact that there's streams and rivers. It's not that there's inestimable value and worth and beauty. What makes Eden Eden is that the glory of God is present in a local manifest way. On day seven that we talked about last week, it was as if the Lord on day seven didn't just rest, take a nap. We're talking about his glory now on day seven fills the cosmos, and in a very localized way, his glory, his power, his presence is in Eden. This would be his headquarters. This would be where man and God would walk together. This is where uh, there would be communion and fellowship. This would be the temple. This would be the Holy of Holies, and God would dwell with man. And by the way, if you pan out from the Scripture, just to kind of get a glimpse of the great theme of this whole narrative, It seems to be that one way you could say the theme of this book is that it is the king of creation who relentlessly pursues his people to dwell with them. In Genesis 2, he dwells with his people. In the Old Testament narrative of the temple, his glory descends and it resides in the temple. In Jesus Christ, his name is called Emmanuel, which means what? It means God with us. Revelation 21 and 22, once again, the glory of God descends and the kingdom of God is with man. All of this narrative is this, is that he is relentlessly pursuing you. He is relentlessly pursuing you. He wants you. He wants your heart. This is the story of the book. He is in relentless pursuit of outcasts and misfits. He wants you. Because you are his what? Masterpiece. And this is what makes Eden Eden. And the vocation that he gives them is is to work it and to keep it. That is the crown. The first occupation is a farmer. It calls to mind Paul Harvey's Dodge commercial. And on the eighth day, God looked out over a spacious creation and he said, I need a farmer. This is God. He needs a farmer. And this farmer, this man, is given an occupation to work it and to keep it and to work the ground. It's very fascinating, isn't it, that here you have a man in a garden given a mission and a purpose for living. And it's no wonder as we look at the true and better, at Jesus' true and better, That The Gospel of John, who, as we talked about last week, he's writing a new creation narrative. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He's writing a new Genesis story with Jesus as the true and better Adam. And as we move to the end of the narrative as Jesus is finishing his work, he has kept the ground, he has worked the ground. In Genesis, or I'm sorry, in John chapter 18, what do we find is that as his ministry is coming to a close, we find Jesus in all the other all the other gospels, it refers to it as Gethsemane. John calls it a garden. And in John 19, when Jesus is crucified, John is the only one to say, now the place that he was crucified was located in a garden. And in John chapter 20, when Jesus raises from the dead and appears to Mary, Mary does not recognize that it is him because it says Mary supposed that he was a gardener. Do you see the ties to the biblical story? Is that the work that the Lord gave Jesus to do is done and it is finished in a garden. He, is a, he was supposed to be this gardener. Why? Because he is pictured by John as the true and better Adam who fulfills the work of his father and Jesus who said, Father, I have glorified you on earth by fulfilling the work that you have given me to do. That is how you preach Christ. From Genesis. So here we have Jesus who finished the work, but we also have a very clear picture to the vocation of this man, and I ask you, what is the purpose and calling of your life? What is the very specific thing that he has given you to do? And it calls to mind the words of uh, Colossians chapter 4 when Paul tells this one man in the church of Colossae, fulfill your ministry in the Lord. How many of you ever wanted to quit or give up, right? How many have ever said, I just don't, I, I, I'm tired, whatever. Listen, fulfill your ministry in the Lord. Are you a farmer? Do it for his glory. Are you a business owner? Do it for his glory. Are you a single mom who's tirelessly wrangling the kids and trying to grow them up in the faith? Do it for his glory and as unto the Lord. Are you a single? Are you married? Do you have roommates? Uh, are you an employee? Wherever you are at, listen, fulfill your ministry in the Lord. Work the ground. Keep the ground. Vocation is a beautiful, beautiful thing. We are his masterpiece. Point number two, created with Freedom. Look at verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to talk about those trees more next week. In depth. But let's get this, they are real trees. It is unlikely that they had some magical power as if they were like the Fountain of Youth or uh, Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade where he drinks from the cup. It's unlikely that these trees actually held magical power. However, these trees demonstrate, and it is a very clear picture of one of the great traits of being created in the image of God, that we are created with the power and the freedom to choose. Some of you chose to came here today willingly. Others of you were dragged here by somebody. But one of the great traits of being created in the image of God is that we were created with the power, the freedom, to choose. Look at verse 16 and 17 as it describes us, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "You may surely eat of what? Of every tree in the garden." But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Uh, This is remarkable that God in the scope of his creation gives unlimited freedom, unlimited freedom with one restriction. And that like our God who's full of grace and mercy and good gifts, that he gives unlimited freedoms. But then he gives one restriction. And that one restriction seems to suggest that we have the power and the ability to choose, that his relationship with us is not, listen, if you checked out, check in. Ready? His relationship with us is not meant to be a robotic relationship. It is a relationship that is supposed to be responsive, willing, obedient. The choice that comes from the heart to love him And would it be choice if we didn't have the choice to reject him? Now, some of you uh, have chosen to become parents. Why would you do that? I mean, you knew, at least historically, you knew that that child would be birthed in pain, right? You knew that at age two, that they would teethe and they would go through the terrible twos and they would cry and they would whine. And that whining just won't stop. You knew that at age 8 or at age 10 that that child would fall off a bike and they would break an arm. You knew that there was a good chance that in their teenage years that that child, they could hurt your heart and they could rebel and they could make really bad choices. An old proverb says this, not a proverb from the Bible, but an old proverb says, when your children are little, they step on your feet and when they're older, they step on your heart. And yet, in the midst of all of those things that you knew would cause pain, you still decided to have children. And somebody out there is saying, nah, uh, mine were an accident. Right? <laughs> possible. It's possible. But why would you have children? Because you knew it was going to be Painful. We had children because in spite of the potential of pain, we knew that there was joy in relationship, didn't we? The experience of new life, the joy of walking with our children and seeing them grow. And wouldn't it be fair to say that the same could be said of God? Why would God, people go into speculation? Listen, I don't know all the answers philosophically, but I know this. I know that as a parent... The, the joy of relationship with my children is worth the possibility of pain, isn't it? And here you have mankind given genuine choice to choose. And these two trees become that picture of life and death. Moses writes this, okay? This is the book of Moses. Moses also writes Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I can almost hear Moses, as, as he's writing this for the Jewish people coming out of uh, uh, Egypt, I can almost hear his next sermon to the people. In fact, we have that sermon recorded. Here it is in uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, it, it says this, that Moses says to the people, uh, next one, I'm sorry, go to, go to Moses 1. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, read it, choose life. Say it again. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. This is his his sermon in Deuteronomy 30. And I can almost see Moses, who's writing and inscribing this, picturing the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the great choice of freedom that God has given humankind and speaking to the people of Israel, choose life. Have you, like Napalm Girl, said yes to Jesus Christ? Maybe for the first time or maybe continually, have you said, yes, I choose life? Because every day before us, uh, believer, now let me talk to you. Every day before us, we have the choice between the flesh and the spirit, don't we? It's It's a genuine choice. If you live by the flesh, you will gratify the nature of the sinful nature. And if you live by the spirit, let us walk by the spirit. Flesh, spirit, life, death, light, darkness. Jesus then comes along in the Gospel of John who writes a new Genesis narrative. What is uh, what is uh, those great words in, in the Gospel of John that are not recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the... Life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of life. John 1, in him was life, and his life was the light of men. And all of a sudden, as the gospel unfolds, we see that the tree of life is a person. It is Jesus Christ. And all who come to him will live. And the great Genesis narrative begins to unfold as we see Jesus, the true and better living water. And guess what? He wants you to want him. And he gives you that choice today. We are his masterpiece, created with freedom and given marriage as a gift. Last point, given marriage as a gift. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, uh, it is, what? Read It's it not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper for him, Now, this should strike us. It's the first time it's used. Not good. It's not good. What's not good? It's not here talking that there's anything morally wrong with his creation, uh, but that something in creation is not yet functioning the way that he has designed it to. No, this is not an indictment against singleness or against singlehood. That is not what is not good here. What is not good is is that there is nobody like Adam yet in the story, in the narrative. There's nobody like Adam who bears the image of God with him. There's nobody like Adam to help him steward his calling. And so God made a helper. And he says this, I will make a helper fit for him. Fit simply means this, equal and essential. I like, do you like that? Because I like that. It means equal and essential. And as the narrative unfolds, as, as the Lord uh, creates this equal and essential partner of his, a helper suitable for this man, Adam, as this unfolds, the Lord gives a fellow image-bearer to give oversight and rule to creation. Together, this man, this woman, they would have oneness of purpose. They would come together in a way as if God was bringing the two halves back together again or the two sides literally back together again and he would unite them in marriage. And as God formed this woman and brought her to the man, we have the first human words in the Bible. In fact, it is the only human words before the fall of man. And these words are poetry. Isn't it fitting that at the splendor of God's creation that the first words of a man are poetry to his woman? Isn't that awesome? Men, above anything else, when you look at a lady, she is God's poem. She is God's masterpiece. She is glorious in splendor. And Adam says, in the beauty of this moment, verse 23, the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in the Hebrew, it is very poetic and it's glorious and it's like a symphony and it's awesome as this man is in awe of this poem that has come to life. And with that, Moses now gives like an editorial comment He breaks out of the narrative, Moses does, and kind of gives a charge to Israel, to the people of God in verse 24. Therefore, this is editorial. He doesn't do this often. He breaks out of the narrative and he gives editorial comment. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This verse is quoted four times in the New Testament. Every time it's pointing back to the Genesis narrative as the gold standard of marriage. Now, don't ignore the implications here for singles, by the way. This is not saying that singles are less valuable. It is not saying that singles are a half of a person. In fact, marriage does not automatically complete anybody, does it? (laughs) Marriage does not do that, nor does marriage automatically make us whole. In fact, it is very possible, listen, it is very possible to be single and relationally satisfied, and it is also very possible to be married and relationally empty. What it is upholding here is this. Whether married or single, God designed us to journey through life with help. We are created for relationships, so much so, so much so that when Jesus is leaving the disciples and he says, I will not be with you much longer, but I will give you a, what? A helper. I will give you a comforter to be with you and walk with you. And what does the scripture then uphold? That even for those who experience singleness as a result of death or abandonment, it upholds the fact that that person who is walking in a single relationship with the Lord has an incredible relationship with the Lord because the scripture says that he is a father to the, what, fatherless. And it says in Isaiah, you are my husband. What a beautiful picture of God who designed us for relationships, yes. He gave marriage as a gift, but make no mistake, even outside of marriage, even in a life of singleness, even in a life of singlehood, we can walk in sweet fellowship with Jesus Christ because He has given us a helper. Isn't that good news? And it is no mistake that this biblical narrative that begins with a marriage ends with a marriage. And whether you're married or single, all of human history is marching towards that ultimate day when the bride has made herself ready and is presented to the bridegroom. Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22 is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen, if you're married, if you're single, it doesn't matter. What matters is this, is that you are ready on that day to walk the aisle and meet Jesus. Jesus and be united in marriage with him. The great marriage supper of the Lamb. What do we do with this? Action steps, here it is. Choose life, choose life. Maybe you came today, you're in the back five rows today, you kind of slipped in, you're going to slip out. Listen, especially to you, choose life. He's presented before you options every day of life or death, flesh or spirit, choose life. Number two, fulfill your ministry. What is it that God has called you to do? What garden has he put you in to work it, to keep it? Listen, do it with all of your might. Work as unto the Lord, Colossians teaches us. Number three, give God responsive love. Don't be robotic. He wants responsive love, abiding in him, walking with him. Number four, here's a very special opportunity. Pray for your marriage. This week and this week only, our staff talked last week about upholding the fact that God has given us marriage as a gift. Hasn't he, church? Amen? Amen? amen. He's given us marriage as a gift, as a picture. This week and this week only, we want to pray individually for your marriages. Every day this week, Monday through Friday. You ready? Ready? Monday through Friday, from 3 to 6 p.m., our offices are open and our staff is gonna be available to pray for you and your marriage. That is, we're gonna spend time with one of your marriages and we're just gonna pray for you. It looks like this. You're gonna show up anytime between three and six. You don't need an appointment. Just walk in with your marriage. If they don't wanna come, if they're not in town, you can come alone. You're gonna walk in and you're gonna spend 10 or 15 minutes just receiving prayer. Nothing weird, trust me. It is prayer for your marriages. Do you have to have problems to come? No. But you may have problems, that's okay. This is not a counseling session. This is us praying for marriages. Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m., we're going to have staff members available to pray for you in your marriage. No appointment necessary, and as Geico says, 15 minutes could save 15% of marriage problems this year. Okay? (laughs) So, old, young, uh, planning to be married, uh, pre-married, come. 3 to 6 p.m., Monday through Friday, pray for your marriage. Number five and last, believe it. Believe it, that is, you are his masterpiece. You are his masterpiece. I read in a book uh, just yesterday, uh, we live in a selfie culture, don't we? How many of you have ever taken Uh, That One of the girls that was interviewed said this, that I never post my first selfie sometimes it takes me 70 attempts and i thought serious i thought isn't that isn't that sad that we live in such a culture that we we feel that we have to be selective in sharing because we really we really don't have enough self-esteem in the lord to be confident in who we are church believe it you are his masterpiece let's pray father We need your help now as we go out Uh, to you who belongs all glory, power, honor, and dominion. We give you praise. Thank you that you created humanity with a very precious, special image, with the ability to choose. God, give us strength to choose life. Thank you for marriage, which is a gift, but God, I praise you for singles as well who display the glory of your presence, walking in fellowship and harmony with Jesus and the helper, the comforter of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, whether married or single today, we thank you for the gift of relationships and most importantly, the relationship with you. Thank you, Lord. Uh, for your abiding presence, your local presence within our hearts and within the congregation. Help us this week, Father, to do your will, to choose life. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.